Matthew 16. So last week we looked at verses 13 to 17, and we noted then that we're breaking up a paragraph, which is not our normal pattern, because there was so much in it. <laughs> Excuse me. When I get to tearing up, my nose decides to get flowy, and uh, so it'll, it'll fix itself in a few minutes. I need to, for context, we're looking at, obviously at verses 18 to 20 this morning, only three verses, and you may think, oh, well, we'll get out at a good brief time this morning. Yeah, I would, I would have thought so too. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But for context, we do need to back up and look at verse 13 to get a good running start for what we're looking at. So look at verse 13. Here we go. You guys ready? Let's study the Word of God. Even if it isn't about goosebumps, it's like, Lord, you want us to learn something. We need to learn why we don't believe one thing, and though they may, they may, we don't. And here's the reasons why. What do we believe? What is this saying? We don't want to diminish something for fear of what they think. We don't want to give any credence to that, so we need to overemphasize and go out of balance the other way. Nope. We want to fall on the right lines here this morning, verses 18 to 20. So look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, so this is north of the Sea of Galilee, about 25 miles north of where he normally has been operating in Capernaum. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, remember last week we looked at this, it's time to take some inventory. We're down to the last few months before the cross. They're clueless. They're totally clueless. But it's time to get some inventory. So Jesus asked his disciples, plural, they're there. It's private. It's just them and him. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's his title for himself. Who do people out there say that I, the Son of Man, am? What's the word on the street? They, notice plural, it doesn't say who all. Matthew would have been in this group remembering this. And they, back and forth, no doubt, here's the gist. They said, some say John the Baptist. Who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Remember, God promised Elijah would come back before the Christ. Some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Others say you're Elijah, the forerunner to the Christ. And others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So here's the translation there. There's a lot of buzz. When the crowds come see you, they think like we're on the cusp of something awesome. Like the, all the prophecies are getting ready to come true. Any moment now, Jesus says to them, notice to them, plural, who do you? The idea here is second person plural. Who do you all? Who do you all say that I am? That's what they say. Who do you all say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ. They say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, all the various prophets. <laughs> Who do you guys say that I am? Peter's like, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember last week? You're the one. Oh, you're the one the prophecies are about. You're not the forerunner to the Christ. We're not on the cusp of something. It's here. You're the Christ. Again, all, you're the anointed one. You're the one anointed by the Holy Spirit to be the great deliverer and the king. I know who you are, and you're not just what we've been expecting. You're more than we've been expecting. We didn't know that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be the Son of God, too. God has a son with the same nature as him, and it's you. Verse 17. And the exclamation point is proper here in this verse. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, Simon son of John. You just said who my father is. I name your father as Jonah, John. Verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, 
For flesh, here's why he's blessed. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Peter is flesh and blood. He didn't figure this out on his own. No other human being came up and told Peter who the Christ is and pointed this information out among all the confusion about Jesus. Here's why he's blessed. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Remember last week where we closed. Jesus is saying, you're blessed because my Father has given you a special accompaniment, supernatural accompaniment of special individual revelation. Others have seen and heard the same things you've seen and heard, but God has revealed certain things to you that others have yet to see to the level that Peter had seen it. And that's why he's blessed. Others didn't see it. Peter couldn't have seen it on his own, but because the Father caused him to see it. Now here's our text. And... Unfortunately, because of time, we split this text, but don't in your mind split it. This is literally seconds apart. This is just flowing. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, most of you already know what Peter's name means. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Hear it again. I, Jesus says, I will build my church. And I will build it on this rock. And another promise. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, my church, Jesus' church. And verse 19. Jesus tells Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And, keeps going, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then, Again, keep in your mind here what just happened in verse 16. Who do you all say that I am? Well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now back to verse 16. Here comes verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He's not denying he's the Christ. He just said, you're blessed because you know that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now he says to the disciples, tell no one that I'm the Christ. That's confusing. And so... You should already start feeling like, like, whoa, these are short little verses, but we've got some unpacking to do. We do. So we've got actually four things, I think, that are kind of our main points this morning in these three verses. Two of them are out of verse 18. Would you notice number one with me? The foundation of the church. The foundation of the church. You have two main words as you're writing that. Foundation and church. You caught it? Foundation. The church has a foundation, and we're talking about the foundation of the church. So here's where I need to start. I try to make a point. Take nothing for granted. Don't assume that we know things. So, work with me for a second. We know that we're studying an English translation of the New Testament that was written in what language? The Greek language. I don't do what I'm going to have to do several times today. One, because I don't want to try to pull off that I'm something I'm not. That's the main reason, but also because I don't want to confuse our minds. So often I'm going to just take what the underlying text says, and I'm just going to throw it out there without pointing out things behind the scenes, what makes us come to those conclusions, because we could miss it in in English. 
But that's my job to do that. My job is not to make this sound complicated. My job is to make clear what the text says and to make it, again, plain and simple where we can understand and do something with it. So here we have this word church. That's where I need to start. The word behind our English word church just simply means a called out assembly. We have an assembly here this morning. Church means a called out assembly. But watch this. We, in the 2,000 years, last 2,000 years, have started using this word, this word. And because Jesus is so predominant over the last 2,000 years, this word that just simply means a called out, it could be any kind of called out assembly. That country can have a called out assembly. That city can have a called out assembly. So it doesn't have to have a religious nature to it. It just means a call. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament refers to the nation of Israel as the church in the wilderness. And you're saying, no, Israel's not the church. They were the church. They're the called out assembly of God in the wilderness. We now associate it strictly with Jesus because, again, he's been the dominant figure for the last 2,000 years. And so when he has been building his church. So this, this word has a general meaning, but today we almost universally use it for this idea. Jesus' church. Now watch. I'll give you a note in just a moment. More times than not, when you're reading the New Testament, you come across the word church, more times than not, it is referring to a local, specific body or group or community of Christians. There's the church at Jerusalem, the assembly, the called out assembly of the Jeru- at Jerusalem. There was the church at Antioch, the church of the Galatians, the church of the Philippians, church of the Thessalonians. There was the church of the Corinthians. There was the church of the Ephesians, and we could go on and on and on. Here we have the church at Graceview. So more times than not, it refers to a specific local body of believers. But in this passage and other passages, also like Ephesians chapter 5, there's a few places in the New Testament. It's not talking about a specific local group. Write this down. This is referring to the universal church that is composed of all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ over the last 2,000 years. And frankly, on until the Lord Jesus comes back. So I hope you caught the distinction there. Normally in the New Testament, it's talking about the church at Jerusalem or the church at Antioch or the church of Ephesus. Here again, we're the church at Graceview. But this time, the Lord says, I will build. He's not saying I'm going to build a Jerusalem church. I'm going to build the Ephesians. In fact, could I say this? There is no promise in the New Testament that any individual church is guaranteed to survive. There is no longer a church of Ephesus. And it was about as strong a church as there was in the New Testament. So... So many books in the New Testament were tied to the Ephesian church, and yet today, Turkey is 99.8% Muslim. Can I give one more, just for clarification, watch. I wrote this down, not to be mean, but so we'll understand the difference of local versus universal. Local churches almost always have unbelievers in them. This morning, there are unbelievers at Graceview Church. But the universal church has no unbelievers in it. The universal church is those that were saved at this time, those that were saved in 100 A.D., 500 A.D., 1000 A.D., 1500 A.D., this time period, anywhere around the world, anybody who's a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the universal church, and that's what Jesus is saying he's going to build. Now, let's get to the other section. Look at verse 18 with your eyes. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You are Peter. So here comes another little technicality. Ready? Who do people out there say that I am? They give their answers. They're all answering. Who do you say that I am? Peter gives an answer. 
The word you from verse 17 to 19, I think, is used seven or eight times. Pay attention here. It is in those times, it is second person singular. First person is I. Third person is he, she, him, her, them. Second person is you. I could say you all, but that would be second person plural. This is Jesus speaking to second person singular. He's only talking to Peter in Verse 17, 18, and 19, he pronounced the blessing, and now he's going to give this commendation, and he's going to give these responsibilities and duties that he has coming up. So he's talking to Peter. And watch, more technicality. What this is actually saying is Jesus says, and I tell you, having just said this pronouncement, you've been blessed, my Father. He's revealed to you what other people don't see. And I tell you, you are Petros. You are Petros, which means stone. You are Petros, stone. And on this rock... Watch, Petra, Petra. So you're Petros, stone, and on this rock, Petra, this great, large rock, that's where I'll build my church. And so you can already start seeing how some people take this. Let's admit, Jesus is clearly playing on the name Peter. By the way, his name is Simon. Jesus is the one who gives him the name Peter. God comes to Abram and says, your name's not going to be Abram anymore. It's going to be Abraham. He comes to Jacob and says, I'm changing your name to, to, uh, to Israel. Here Jesus comes to Simon and says, I'm going to give you a new name, and your new name is going to be Petros, Stone. So how some people take this is like the Roman Catholic Church uses it, right? He's clearly playing on the name of Peter. You are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. Again, if you're taking notes, some of you would be like, uh-oh, I need to pay attention. I have this in my family or in my background. Others of you would be like, well, I'm from the South. I don't really have a whole lot of this. I'm already bored. Well, you need to pay attention anyway. <laughs> Write this down. This is the text. Here it is. These two verses are the text that the Roman Catholics have used for centuries and centuries and centuries to form and practice at least three. I'm going to give you the main three doctrines from this text that they pull. Have you already heard it? You already hear it in your mind? You, you guys hear this? You are Peter, Petro, stone, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. And I give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. Like, oh, okay. This you can kind of see, oh, how they arrived at these conclusions. You say, Jeff, what are these Catholic doctrines? Well, here's the first one. They believe that this happened, and then Peter eventually, church tradition, not in the Bible, church tradition would say that Peter eventually makes his way to Rome. And once he was there, because he's Peter, and this was pronounced upon him, he became the lead elder. He became the lead pastor. He became the lead overseer. Here's the word that they use. It is a good Bible word, bishop. Bishop over He became the bishop of Rome, and as the bishop of Rome, with this pronouncement of Jesus upon him, Peter became the first pope. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's making Peter the first pope. But they don't stop there. They also say after Peter died, was killed, being crucified, then the next bishop of Rome took his place, and that next bishop of Rome succeeded Peter and became the second pope, and then the third, and when he died, the fourth, and the fifth, and all the way down to now we have Pope Francis. And you say, okay, is that a big deal? Was Peter was the first pope? They think they're the popes. What's the big deal? They use this text to say that Peter and those who succeed him following him, and we could go further, the cardinals and the other bishops, and even down to their priests, what they call their clergy, as opposed to the laity, you know, 
The laity is just the regular person in the clergy or the higher up, the real church. The laity are never actually part of the church. They're only in fellowship with the church. And here's what they conclude. That the church, the higher up leaders, they have authority based on this text to forgive sins. Or not to forgive sins. Or to revoke your salvation if you go against them. They call it excommunication. And that's where they get this. And you're looking at that saying... Is that possible? Is that right? I mean, is that what this is saying? He's telling Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's got the keys of the kingdom. Are they right? You're Peter Stone on this rock. Huh, maybe he's saying that. All right, let's touch that. So here's where I want to be careful. This is tough for me. Knowing what they have done with this doctrine, everything in me wants to spend the whole message just attacking Catholic doctrine and, and exposing it as heresy. But I have to be balanced. Can we admit the following? Everybody listen. Jesus is certainly honoring Peter. He is honoring Peter. This is significant. Something's taking place here. Why is he honoring Peter? Because of this confession that he made. But last week we saw this. Peter was not the first person to make this confession, so why so much commendation when Peter makes it? I proposed to you last week that Peter was the first one to make this confession accurately. Again, I gave five other instances of others who called him the Christ or recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. But all of those were attached to an immediate display of a miracle. Here, Peter is well removed from any miracle, totally non-emotional, literally from his core, from his soul, from his deep theology. Who do people say that I'm in? Peter just literally, like without having to think, says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus gives him this commendation. So something significant is definitely happening here. But I do want to make clear. Peter is in no way the rock on which the church is built. The man, Peter himself, is not the rock, the Petra, on which the church is built. So, Jeff, why do you think that? I want to give multiple reasons through the text. Weaving in and out of that. Can we start right here? Look at verse 18 again, just real quickly. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Look at it again. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You see how strange that sounds? Can I just state the obvious? If Jesus was doing what some have proposed that he's doing here, then would he not just say, you are Petros, stone, and on you I will build my church? He doesn't do that. Nor does he do this. You are Petros. And then turn to the other disciples and pointing to Peter say, and on him I will build my church. He doesn't do that. He says, you are stone and on this Petra, this large rock, you're a stone, a smaller stone, but on this Petra, this large substantial rock, I will build my church. So here's the million dollar question. What is, quote, this rock? What is this rock? Our point is the foundation of the church. What is this rock? Man, somebody pull a battery on that clock. It's got to stop. It's just ridiculous. It's so annoying. Uh, give me a few seconds. So literally the timing this week, those of you that were there, 49 of you, I think, or 48 of you were with us Wednesday night. And we're going through how to interpret the Bible and how to study the Bible. And we took a note that when we're studying, we're going to make observations, and then we're going to make an interpretation after observations. And here's our goal in interpreting, is to find the one single meaning of the text. And then I'm reading this, 
And now you have on your handout what? Three possible interpretations of this rock. And I'm like, Lord, I don't like doing that. And so literally, it's as if this is a confession that this is such a confusing, heavy text that it was hard to narrow down to what the one interpretation is. And so I'm going to throw these out to you. But here's my two qualifiers. You ready before we start hitting them? You ready? I'm going to say this probably this coming Wednesday. One of the, the proper rules of interpreting Scripture is when you have a difficult, obscure passage, always interpret it in light of clear passages. If the Bible is clear on something, then always interpret difficult passages in light of the clear passage. Here's the second thing. It didn't hit me till yesterday. Jeff, calm down. Cool your jets. If you'll actually look at what you're, what you're going to tell these people tomorrow morning... You're not actually offering them three different interpretations, possibilities of this text. You're offering them three things that are so intertwined and so connected, they're actually three aspects of one overarching truth. So here's where I've concluded. These three things you're getting ready to write are all true, and they're all coming into play in this text. So what are they? Number one, write this down. What is this rock? If it's not Peter, what is this rock the church is built upon? Number one, this rock is Jesus Christ himself. The rock is Jesus Christ himself. So where's that in the text? Watch. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He pronounces blessing and then he comes right back to that. Watch what he says. On this rock. Catch it. On the truth, the fact of what you just said, that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of God, on that fact, the church will have its foundation. The church is built on Jesus himself. Watch. The Bible alludes to the church, the universal church, not just Graceview Church, the universal church as a body, and we are a body connected to Jesus as the head. The Bible says that the church is a bride connected to Jesus as the groom. The Bible alludes to us in an analogy that we are like sheep. We're a flock connected to our shepherd, our great shepherd, our chief shepherd, our good shepherd. The Bible also says that the church is a building. And this building is a temple. And we're called, I don't don't have time to look up all these passages. We are actually like not cold stones or cold bricks in this building. We're living stones in this building. But the building is connected to Christ. Christ is the foundation. You say, Jeff, okay, let's kind of see what you're saying there. It's kind of implied. Is it more clear in the Scripture? Go over to 1 Corinthians. I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is writing. So we're noticing, what is this rock? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul Right at the end of verse 9, the second half of verse 9 will not be on your screen, but look at it. He's telling these Corinthians, hey, Corinthians, you are God's field. Oh, there's a whole other analogy. Paul's been saying, hey, listen, you guys got to stop being so divided and infighting and all your quarreling and strife. He says, you're God's field. Yes, I planted. I started the church. Humanly speaking, Paul started the church of the Corinthians. This other man comes along later named Apollos, who's an extremely gifted preacher. And apparently the Corinthian church started well, but under Apollos it really grows. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. Neither one of us, you're out there saying, well, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. And over here, some are saying, I follow Peter. Paul's like, stop doing that. We're just servants. It's it's about God and you. You're God's field. And then look, God's building. 
Verse 10. Paul says to the Corinthians, according to the grace of God given to me. Paul said, I didn't decide to do this. God decided for me. My path in life was set. God gave me a gift of grace. It was given to me. So here's, here's his assignment in life. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Translation, I planted. I churned the soil up. I'm the one that planted. Yes, I wasn't there when it comes to full fruition, and we see all that this great harvest is going to be there in Corinth. But now to this analogy is a building. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else, <clears throat> Apollos, and all who would be after him, someone else is building upon it. I laid the foundation. Somebody else is building on the foundation. So the building is going up. And he kind of gives a warning. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Verse 11 is my text. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The Bible is super clear. Jesus is the foundation of the Corinthian church and all the true church around the world. Jesus is the foundation. Now, back to Matthew 16. We always want to leave a marker in our main text. Number two, what is this rock? Number two, the rock can also, and I dare say is also, are you ready? This rock on which the church is built is also the genuine, heartfelt confession that Peter had just spoken. Peter had just said, you, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. On this rock, on this great Petra, on that large rock, I will build my church. Now, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, but also it is built on this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Watch this. It's as though Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you know how your name means stone? Kind of like your name means stone. I'm going to build my church on this truth of this great confession. Not only I am the Christ, but the actual giving of the confession that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you may be thinking, Jeff, I don't see the difference. Watch. Ready? Genuine believers, not everybody who says they're a Christian, genuine believers understand who Jesus is. Genuine believers trust who Jesus is and follow. Genuine believers confess who Jesus is. They confess. Typically, at least at their baptism. I like how Mike does our baptisms now. Do you confess Jesus is the Lord? And he goes through a whole thing. And they have to confess that publicly. Again, genuine believers understand who Jesus is. They trust who Jesus is. And that's so pure, so real, they confess who Jesus So if you're out there like, well, I'm a Christian. I've just never told anybody, and I plan on not telling anybody. You need to check your heart. You're probably not a Christian if you've not confessed him as Lord and Savior and the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because all of his people, we have that in communion. We have that in common. Now look at verse 18. Before you give you the third one, look at verse 18 again. And I tell you, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. You see it? I will build my church. I will build my church. That's a promise. Do you know what the promise is? Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, just like God gave you that supernatural accompaniment of a special individual revelation of who I am, I will continue 
on and on until I return, I will continue to give a, a supernatural accompaniment that is a special, unique, individual revelation. For me, it was 1979. Jesus made a promise. That will keep happening, and that has continued to happen, and it cannot be stopped. The foundation is Jesus. The foundation is the confession of Jesus, and in third, which we just sang. is the second song after the opening prayer. Did you catch it? This whole thing, I believe, I believe, I believe. Do you see how it all kept coming back to Christ? We believe, we believe about the Father, we believe about the Son, and about the Holy Spirit. And why is all that true? Because I believe in Jesus. If you stood there and couldn't sing that, you need to check your heart. You're probably not on your way to heaven. But if you could honestly say, and I know all of that, and I believe all of that because I believe in Jesus, then you're confessing as you're singing. That's what we do. The third one, this rock is also the combined testimony of all of the apostles to form the church's foundation. But all the time in that, you say, wait a minute, you just said Jesus is the foundation. Well, we got to look at another passage of Scripture. And it ties into our Matthew 16, what the Lord's saying to Peter. The rock is also the combined testimony of all the apostles. Peter, the first one, representing the first one, he's the first fruits, of all the apostles to form the church's foundation with Jesus as the cornerstone who anchors it all together. Now, you're saying, Jeff, you're kind of contradicting the first thing that you just put. It's not a contradiction. Again, it all links together. Hold your spot, Matthew. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Go over there real quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. This is a continuation of a passage we looked back a few weeks ago when we had communion. I can't go that far back where we did there. I would love to, but I don't have time. You're going to see verse 19 on the screen right before that. So if you're in Ephesians 2, the Bible says, For through him we have, we both, that's Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. Now watch verse 19. Here it comes. You say, Jeff, where'd you get this third thing about this combined testimony of the apostles? 19, here we go. So then, you, he's talking to Ephesian Gentile Christians. That's kind of like a Grace View style church. We're mostly, if not all, Gentile here. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Earlier, back in verse 11, he says there was a time you were away from God. You didn't have access to the covenants. There were no promises for Gentiles, not at that time. But then he went in how later on through Christ, it's been opened up to all of us. We can all become the people of God. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Don't, don't walk around like you don't, don't belong. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You mean even with the Jewish saints? Even with the great Old Testament saints? And yes, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're like family members. Verse 20 is the point. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he's the key to it all. But verse 20 is clear that the church, Jews and Gentiles, both who have access to God through Jesus, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I didn't have verse 21 if you have an advantage if your Bible's open there because it says Christ Jesus the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jews and Gentiles built on the foundation of Christ but also built on this foundation of the apostles. And so we're stopping to think, how's that possible? What's that pointing to? How are the apostles part of... Does that mean that like Jesus and then we have these apostles themselves 
As part of this foundation that the church is continuously being built and built and built, more and more people are coming into this living temple of God that's called out assembly that is now billions strong. And we're all built on these 13 people, Jesus and these 12. No, hang with me. This is a clear pointing toward their writings. It's their testimony. And particularly, it's talking about their writings. Let me put it this way. Today, I know Jesus is the cornerstone. How did that happen? 2,000 years ago, literally on the other side of the world, do you know how much truth has been lost? Do you know how many religions have started and stopped in 2,000 years? How did that truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the cornerstone, to build your life on, how did it get from 2,000 years ago to this point? Today, when I heard it, how did it get here? It had to be written down. So someone wrote it down. Let me word it this way, because for time's sake, catch it though. Our saving faith is specifically in Jesus. But our saving faith is also in the promises of the Word of God. Because the Word of God tells us who He is and what He's done. Our specific faith is in Jesus Christ, but our faith is also in the promises of God. Where did those come from? The apostles. So you see how it happens. The Holy Spirit inspires the apostles who've been trained by Jesus. So here they are. They write the New Testament. The New Testament tells us Jesus is the Christ. We put our faith in Christ and also in the promises. And therefore, you can see how they're part of this process. The foundation is Jesus. Those who are in it confess. And the reason we confess is because we believe the promises and Christ. And that's the rock on which the church is built. Number two. Back to Matthew 16. Would you notice the guaranteed victory of the church? We saw the foundation of the church. Notice the guaranteed victory of the church. See, remember a while ago how I was feeling really bad based off of what we've been talking about Wednesday night? Lord, I really don't want to go in there and tell them there's three interpretations. There's only one meaning of the text. All right, right here, second part of verse 18. I'm going to have to give you two possible interpretations. All that is is an admission I can't say for sure. Sorry, I'll throw it out. Both are true. Look at verse 18 with your eyes, because this is a promise that we need to sink our teeth into. You, if you say, I, I'm not getting a whole lot yet, then sink your teeth into the second part of verse 18. Get it. The gates of hell, our Lord says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That's a promise. Now, what does it mean? Ancient cities had walls. And to get in, since it has walls, you need to have gates. So they're not just entryways. They were also places of power and authority. At the gates are where the leading people of the city would go. And they would no doubt have rooms and things, but they would hold court and make decisions and laws that were binding. It was looked at as the seat of authority and power, the gates of the city. This says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So wait, we're talking about the seed of authority and power, but we're talking about the seed of authority and power of hell. Oh, that makes us think of someone, doesn't it? Because now our mind automatically goes to Satan. Does Satan have power and authority? Yes or no? Yes. Listen, Satan has massive power and authority. Massive. I couldn't say for, so, for sure. As, par, as far as pure strength and ability... 
and authority, he apparently ranks somewhere from number two to four in the, in the whole universe. Huge difference between one and two. Whoever those two, three, four are, I throw in Michael and Gabriel apparently, and I don't know, maybe Lucifer was ahead of Gabriel, and maybe it's Michael and Lucifer right there battling for number two. Who's the most? This is a powerful person, and he has ranking forces of evil underneath him, and they are constantly scheming against us, constantly. So then what is this? Could it be that the Lord is is literally telling us they are constantly scheming against you? Oh, by the way, it is pretty clear that anybody that's paying a lick of attention, Satan is even now mounting an assault on the church of the United States of America. We've never seen what's coming. You've never seen what's, I mean, we're on the doorstep. We're in the building. Now, we're not on the porch anymore. We're in the foyer now. It's coming. Oh, no. No, calm down. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, it's going to get rough. It's coming. And we're going to find out who the true church is. But he's foolish. It doesn't ever work. Every time he persecutes the church, it only makes it more pure and more desperate for its master. It only drives him to him more. He doesn't have the power to stop Jesus from advancing his kingdom. He has no power like, I'm going to keep anybody else from coming into the church. He's tried for 2,000 years. It literally doesn't work. I'm going to tear down those people who are already in the church. He can afflict us and cause persecution and suffering. He can do no permanent damage. Literally, it always backfires because we're not just conquerors through him that loved us. We're more than conquerors through him. Like your techniques backfire, buddy, but he's coming after us. And the Lord's allowing it because, like, yeah, church in America, you've got really lukewarm, kind of stagnant. You know what you need? You need some persecution to wake you up and get you desperate again. So it's pretty clear what's coming. Again, it will not work. And Satan would love to take those who are already in the church and yank them out and remove them from the assembly. But he can't. So what's at play here? Write this down. This may be very well pointing to the truth that Christ's power, Christ's purposes, and Christ's promises for the church ensure us that the assaults of Satan can never ultimately be victorious over the church. Like, literally, it is not going to work. He cannot defeat the church. If we were to study church history, especially in the earlier days, there were times it seemed like the church was literally about to be extinguished. It is going to be overrun. They're not going to make it. But here we are, 2,000 years later, billions strong. Can I say this before I give you the second? possible interpretation and this was for me this week Monday I was just walking around like defeated beat up semi almost discouraged not a great day and then thankfully the Lord's like really are you are you going to walk around fearful grace for you are you going to walk around fearful of evil are you going to walk around defeated No, God in us is so far stronger and greater than Satan and all of his hordes in the world. The gap is enormous. We have promises. But I don't think that's the primary interpretation. (laughs) And all of you are like, yeah, like that. That very well may be the interpretation. Everything I just said is true. It is still true. 
But I think the second interpretation is the best one. And it's this. Can I borrow from Sproul? R.C. Sproul writes the following. Because there's something, again, I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. That's why I'm going to borrow him. Notice what he says. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Many of you have an ESV Bible and you have a little number there. And you've already looked at the bottom of the page and you see the word Hades. So listen first. Everybody, if you'll listen really well, I'll not repeat, hopefully. No promises. I'll try. Watch. What it actually says is the gates of Hades. Hell shall not prevail. So that could be one interpretation what I just gave. Sproul writes the following. And by the way, this was the predominant interpretation that I saw of the sources that I read. I didn't see it when I first read it. I went the direction of the first interpretation. And so I'm giving this one second. Sproul writes, quote, Hades, got to pay attention, Hades is the actual Greek word in the text, and hear it, Hades does not have the same connotation as hell. Hades is not the same connotation as hell. What does he mean? He continues. So hear it first, more than writing it, hear it first. Hades, he writes, was the Greek word for the underworld where all people went at death. You say, hold on, Jeff, all people, no, go to heaven. No, no, no. Old Testament times, Hades, again, he's correct, Greek word for the underworld where all people went at death. Particularly in the Old Testament times. Some have different views there. Anyway. He writes, this Hades, this underworld where people go at death, made, got to get this, no distinction between those who went into blessedness and those who went into eternal punishment. So people on earth, in the Old Testament times, they die, they go to Hades. There would be some go to blessedness. What was the name of that place of blessedness in the Old Testament? At two names. Abraham's bosom, and the other starts with letter P. Paradise. I believe that. I don't believe that in the New Testament times a saved person goes to paradise in Abraham's bosom anymore. They couldn't go to heaven because their sins hadn't yet been paid. That's, I know some disagree with that. I take that view that this was kind of a holding room, a separate from the place of torments. But he continues. So what does he mean? The place of Hades, the gates of Hades, the bar. I won't go too far with this analogy, but my family are plumbers, and I don't know a whole lot what I'm talking about, but there's something called a backflow preventer in plumbing. I won't tell you what it's there for, but let's just say there's a pipe. It has liquids and some solids. It has stuff coming through it, all right? And the backflow preventer allows stuff to go that way, but if ever there were to be a clog that would start backing up, well, then it, it shuts it closed so that the, the, the backup doesn't go back into the house. It's a good thing you've got one that's a great invention. Keep stuff from coming into your toilet and bathtub you don't want. Anyway, the gates of Hades, what the Lord is saying is, are not just like this. You go in, and you're always in Hades, trapped. You never get out. Now, what he's saying is, the gates of Hades, the gate of Hades, lets you in. Oh, it doesn't hold us in. Sproul writes the following. He says, Jesus was simply saying that not even death, the last enemy, would be able to overcome his church. Do you get what he's saying? We sang about it. It was in one of the songs this morning. I didn't know what we were going to sing. But when the Lord died on the cross, he died. Where did he go? He didn't go to heaven. He went to Hades. Not to the torments part to continue paying for sin. No, it's finished. He goes over to this part. To 
Tell them the good news. You're getting ready to get out of here. And oh, by the way, you evil spirits who back in the book of Genesis were condemned and put in chains of darkness over there. You lost. You lose. Because I'm coming out of here in just a couple of days. And that's exactly what happened. So he goes, but he went to Hades. But the Lord's point here is that with him, Hades was not strong enough. He could not possibly be held by it. And if he couldn't be held by it, then the point here made is, it's not going to hold me, and if it won't hold me, it won't hold you. It can't hold you. You are not going to be imprisoned in death. No true Christian's physical body is going to be kept in the place of the dead. Follow, if you would, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's just touch it. 1 Corinthians 15. Go there. 1 Corinthians, after you write that. 1 Corinthians 15. Wish I had more time to just lock in on this one, but we don't. 1 Corinthians 15. You got your Bible open there? That's very helpful. I would have you notice the last word of verse 52. It will not be on the screen. Do you see it? Changed. Changed. It's important. We shall be changed, Christians. Anybody in here has been thinking about death and been a little bit nervous and scared you ought to really pay attention. It says, we shall be changed. Verse 53, why do we have to have this change? Verse 50, he had said, because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's going to have to be a change. We have flesh and blood. Verse 53, here we go. Here we go. For this, here's theology. Here's what has to happen. For this perishable, that's this right here. That's this. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. It has to be a change. And this mortal body, this one that's capable of dying, must put on immortality. Has to happen. When, now here he's moving to a time frame, when the perishable, he's talking about something that is still, I'll give you a hint, still yet future for us. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. When these bodies go into the ground, and right now, many of us are already showing our signs of, that they're perishable, but when they reveal that they're mortal and die, then there's going to be this event, it's called the rapture, when we'll be reunited with the body, and then it'll be glorified, imperishable, immortal. And then at that time, verse 54, the text says, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? There's a little snarkiness in verse 55. At that time, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? You don't have any. You lost. Y'all tell me, death means, say it louder, death means separation. You say, Jeff, so what happens? Man, I don't have time to develop this and track it on. Here's what happens. If I die today, you'll be left dealing with my body. My soul and spirit will go to be with the Lord. I don't know what all will happen to this body. I don't know how long between my death and the coming of the Lord... But we're going to die. Barring this rapture of the Lord, you should plan for this. 
me just read what I've, I got to go fast. Hear it though. We will die, but we will not be held in death's prison. We will die to live. We will die to live. If I die today, I didn't really die. Don't you feel sorry for me? Don't, don't feel sorry. I feel sorry for you because you've got to deal with the, all this and go meet with McDougal and all ah. Don't feel sorry for me. I'm now living. But in the future, at this other event, when I get this other glorified body. So take a look. Whatever happens between now and that event, this same body that is mine will be glorified, reunited for me to live with through eternity in this body. Whatever may happen to it that is so ugly and we don't even like to think about it. And at that moment, hey, death, (laughs) you were supposed to separate me. People lived on earth like, oh, I'm going to be separated. Well, number one, if I die today, I'll be separated from you for a time. And I will be separated from this body for a time. But then at this event, we're together. I get my body back, and the Lord never left me. I was never apart from Him. I just went to Him, waited on the body, and waiting on my brothers and sisters to join me. The gates of Hades shall not prevail. Number three, Matthew 16. Let's go spend time in verse 19 for a few minutes. Matthew 16, verse 19. Would you notice the privilege and responsibility of Peter? The privilege and responsibility of Peter. And this is where I make another confession. Because of the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church to this text, I'm very uncomfortable with my title to the sermon. Very uncomfortable with it. The prominent place of Simon Peter. And you're sitting there thinking, well, when did you realize you were going to be uncomfortable with this text? When I typed it. Well, then why would you do it? Why did you pick a title? Because I can't ignore that the Lord is clearly honoring Peter. He's giving him a place of significance in the forming of the church. So I want to be honest with the text. Can we admit this? The Lord is bestowing. Look at verse 19. Peter, you, the you is second person singular. I'm talking to you, Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's some honor being bestowed. Can I state a fact? Four times in the New Testament that the apostles are listed by name every single time. Peter's listed first. Every time. Judas Iscariot's always listed last. Now, some would hear what I just said about this listing and him first and conclude, oh, that, coupled with this, means, are you with me? Peter must be over all of the other apostles. No, I don't take it that he's over all the other apostles. I want to propose to you that Peter would be looked at as the first among equals. Equals. But he would be first among equals. He is listed first. He does have this pronouncement put upon him. But he's not over the other apostles. Now look again very quickly at verse 19. You see it? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So there was this Baptist preacher and this Presbyterian elder and this Catholic priest. And they went to the pearly gates. And there was Pete. How many jokes start like that? 
someone or there are these three or four or five or two people and they come up and they're coming to Peter who's at the pearly gates of heaven and they're just hoping that they're going to get in because Peter has the gates of the kingdom of heaven. Well, they're really messed up on a lot of things because heaven doesn't have the pearly gates yet. That's the second, the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. But there's also this, watch, there's this mentality when people read that, they drop a couple of words. Here's what they hear in their head. Sometimes we hear things that aren't really there. Peter was given the keys of heaven. You know what that means. And then he binds, and he's able to loose. So he binds and loose. Jeff, what does this bind and loose mean? We'll write it down. Glad you asked. Write this down. To bind meant to forbid. Whatever you bind, whatever you forbid, shall be bound or forbidden in heaven. So the word bind means to forbid something, and to loose meant to permit or allow something. It means that's what it means. So what are we talking about here? Are these jokes correct? (laughs) After we die, do we go there? So here's the unfortunate part. Some folks, oh, I wish I had more time. Some folks have this idea in their head that these keys to the kingdom of heaven means that Peter is standing at a location. The kingdom of heaven is not so much about a location. It's about a relationship. It's about a special relationship with the Lord in which he rules and reigns over your life. That's what it's talking about. So then what is this keys? Write this down. You'll see the last part to write down. This text has led some people to, hear me first, wrongly conclude that Peter took Jesus' place on earth and that Peter calls the shots on who gets to go to heaven or not. That's what the text is saying, verse 18. And in verse 19 follows it, hey, it is what it is. Peter decides who gets to go to heaven or not. Write this down. The idea that Peter decides who goes to heaven is heresy. Why? Because the Bible is very clear. Jesus Christ alone makes that decision of who goes to heaven. You say, well, God the Father. Do you realize Jesus will be the judge on the last day? Jesus, the Son, according to John 5. God the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is not saying, hey, Peter, whatever you think, it's up to you, buddy. Listen, we've got a whole other thing going up here. I did what I needed to do. Paid for sins. You take it from here, right? You're in charge. That's not what happened. Can I share some reasons why? You'll not write these, but I want you to log them. Nothing in the New Testament ever, you won't find it, nothing in the New Testament ever suggests that Peter saw himself as a pope. Next, catch this mentally. If this text was supposed to kick off such an office like a pope figure, a vicar, who's going to take Jesus' place with all the authority, like Jesus went to heaven, and so there needs to be a human being who has all of his authority, and Peter had it first, and then it passed to them, and then them, and then them. If this was really meant to kick off such an office, then I have to ask myself, and you should too, why only Matthew? Why does only Matthew put these two verses? You say, well, maybe Matthew's the only one that covered this. Go home. Go home and read Mark 8, Luke 9. Here's what you would find. They cover the other section. What they skip is 17, 18, 19. It literally, Mark 8 and Luke 9, it it happens this way. And who do people say that I am? Well, they say this, this, and this, and this. Don't tell anybody. It skips this. If if something so huge as the, the Pope position was being promoted here, surely Mark and Luke would have included, I mean, this is huge. They didn't. Third thing to consider. Watch. Peter, hint, hint. Here's a hint. 
Peter is the one who goes to this man named Cornelius. He's the first Gentile who puts his faith in Christ and becomes a New Testament Christian without becoming a Jew first. Peter was the first one to go to the Gentile's house and preach the gospel, and he believed. He and his household believed. Cornelius believed. The Holy Spirit fell on them, and it happened in such a way, apparently, like at Pentecost, that Peter and the six Jews that were with him could tell this had really happened. And so the word spread that the Gentiles, watch, when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, he got some explaining to do. You ought to read Acts chapter 11. Like, hey, hey, we got to meet with you. What are you doing out there preaching to Gentiles that they can get saved without becoming Jews and getting circumcised and doing the sacrifices and keeping the laws? What in the world are you doing? Now, hang on, buddies. I'm the Pope. Stand down. Now, what happened? He gives an account. Peter's being called in it. Yeah. Add this. Later on, the Apostle Paul. I don't know why this keeps coming up. Third time in like five weeks, I've alluded to this. Paul has to rebuke Peter publicly, strongly. Hey, Paul, you need to remember he's the Pope. <laughs> no. I would also add this. You ought to study Acts chapter 15. There's this big question. Can Gentiles become true Christians without getting circumcised? We need a church conference. And so they have this thing called the Jerusalem Council. Admittedly, Peter's testimony opens the Jerusalem Council. And then Paul and Barnabas speak. And then, if you read it, just, I challenge you to read Acts 15. The whole tone there is James, the Lord's half-brother, kind of is the lead moderator of the, whole, of the whole thing. And he closes it down, and this is our summation. Almost like he's reaching the conclusion. All right, having heard that and that and that, here's our decision. It's almost like James is carrying authority there in Jerusalem. Hey, wait, you got the Pope right there with you. Just let him decide. It's not what you see. Also, in about six or seven weeks, or maybe a couple of what, months from now, we're going to come up, there's this continuous debate among the disciples. Help me out. Which one of them is the greatest why are you boys asking that it's already been made clear who's the greatest apparently not they're really debating James and John thinks it's them and oh by the way Jesus hears the argument what are you boys fussing about over there we want to know who's the greatest can I sit here and he said there and blah 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 why didn't the Lord say you know who's the greatest remember Matthew 16 I said Peter's the great he doesn't Jesus said bring me a little child and he starts talking about how the Christian that is like a little child is the greatest he never says Peter's the greatest and the whole idea of this succession of one pope after really Religion. Religion sends people to hell sometimes. So what is happening? What do y'all do with keys? You unlock things and you open things. This morning, I don't know for sure. Typically on Sunday morning, Mike Barrow opens our building. He unlocks the doors. He's kind of the steward of this place, our buildings. You say, well, Mike didn't let me in. Right, somebody else may have let you in. But Mike unlocked it first. You open things with keys. Peter, I give you the keys. What does that mean? Is he standing at heaven deciding who gets to go? No, 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 no. Wearsby is all over it. You need to write it down. Wearsby says, Peter was given the privilege of opening the door of faith to the Jews. There's stages in Acts. He opens the door of faith to the Jews at Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. Then in Acts chapter 8, he opens the door of faith to the Samaritans. And as I said a while ago with Cornelius, he eventually opens the door of faith to the Gentiles. Each time. 
On the day of Pentecost, others were speaking, but we particularly have Peter's sermon recorded and 3,000 people get saved. I'm not going to camp here. You gotta, I know you're writing. Listen, though. In, in Acts 8, Philip goes to the half-Jews, half-Gentiles. They start getting saved, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter gets there and Peter lays his hands on them. And then that's like signifying, and we're going to have a unified church. We're not going to have a Samaritan church and a Jewish church. And so Peter is the one who's there, in essence, opening the door of faith to the Samaritans. And as I said a while ago, a little bit later, Acts chapter 10, it is Peter who's preaching the gospel to we Gentiles when we come in. So yes, Peter was given the keys, and he used them, and he opened them, and now he is no longer using keys at the pearly gates, letting people in or not. That's not what that means. Second part of verse 19. This was the part that was really whipping me early in the week, and I feel confident what we're going to say here. You ready? Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I've already told you what bind and loose. Bind means to... Forbid, restrict. To loose means to permit, allow, to give the okay. Would y'all look at the second part again? Look at it, please, with your eyes and just like take away our fear of Catholicism, right? And just look at the text and let's let it say what, here we go. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Man, that sounds like a whole lot of authority. Hey, Peter, whatever you bind, whatever you loose, it'll be bound or loosed in heaven. So I'm going to get technical, I think, one more time. You ready? I'm going to get grammary, just for one more time. There are these things called verb tenses. And I'm not an expert. Most of us have been long out of college. Used to know what it meant, but now I, I get this. So I'm going to try to give a simplified understanding those of you who have an ESV Bible in front of you, do you see a note there beside that? Do you see it right behind the word loosed? Does everybody see that? Did you, have you already? You should have already looked at the bottom of your page and seen what it says. Watch. What we're reading, what's been on the screen and what is in this text is right, but it sounds like it's future tense. Just simple future tense. Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But if you go down to the ESV note and many other translations, what they note is actually what's at play here is a future perfect tense. You say, what's the point? What does it matter? If you look down at the bottom of the text of the page, you'll see that the note shows that for clarity's sake, what this text is actually saying is this. Peter, whatever you bind on earth, hear it, shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You hear the difference? The first one, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. The second, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Shall have been. That's future perfect. Now, pens at rest for a moment. Just hear the best quote that I have today. It's from R.T. France, and he writes the following. This helped me. With simple futures, simple future, which is what we're looking at with our eyes in our main text, if that's what was happening, again, simple future is this, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Hang with me. France writes, with simple futures, Peter would take the initiative and heaven would follow. That's what that would be like. The way I worded it is the Lord would be telling Peter, Peter, you take the lead. And whatever you do, we're going to mirror you. 
You're the lead dancer. We're mirroring you. We're waiting to see what you're going to do. Back to France. With simple futures, Peter would take the initiative and heaven would follow. But with future perfects, the impression is that when Peter makes his decision, it will be found to have been already made in heaven, making him not the initiator of new directions for the church, but the faithful steward of God's prior decisions. He, he continues, when you see it through the eyes of the perfect the future perfects, he writes, the saying becomes a promise, not of divine endorsement. Hey, Peter, here's a blank check. We've signed it. Go spend it wildly. I can do anything I want with this bunch down here. You're in charge. Nope. He says the saying, when we look at it through future perfects, becomes not a promise of divine endorsement, but, a, but of divine guidance to enable Peter to decide in accordance with God's already predetermined purpose. That's what it is. That's what it is. Peter, you're going to do things and you're going to make decisions and they're going to be the right one. We're going to see to it. We're going to drive this. If you're taking notes quickly, the verb tenses in verse number 19, 19 mean that Peter complies with heaven, not heaven with Peter. Peter complied with heaven, not heaven complying. Peter. Yes, there was a lot of authority. Somebody on earth had to help carry these things out, and he is in a position of honor and prominence, but he's not running wild and rogue doing his own thing. It's not his church. It's not built on him. I'm going to talk as fast as I can, so you need to listen that fast. You see these handwritten, this, is, this happens on Saturday mornings, right? This happens on Saturday mornings. I'm going to read it to you. Verse 19 is a very difficult passage. We must not make too much of Peter from it, but not too little either. I think, here's my, atten- here's my opinion. Did you sense what's happening? What's the Lord alluding to? Something's coming. He says, I will give you the kingdom and whatever. He's, he's talking about something in the future after the Lord's gone. I think that this is ultimately pointing to the soon at this time, the soon coming indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Peter and the frequent fillings of the Holy Spirit in Peter and all Christians subsequently, hang with me, when you put the anointing, indwelling, filling of the Holy Spirit in Peter, watch, coupling that with the unique calling, the unique appointment, and the unique training that the apostles received from Jesus, the result is that they had unique authority to speak for Christ. And they had the unique authority to write these books that we call the New Testament. And so here's where, here's where our stance is. Very unlike our heretical friends in Rome. Number second thing. <laughs> we make a necessary distinction in the authority of the books of the New Testament, which are over all true Christians. All true Christians are under the authority of the writings of the apostles. There's that authority, and then that is compared with the authority of individual pronouncements of preachers and church leaders all through the church age. I preach truth, but sometimes I mess up. We have church meetings and leadership meetings. We had one this week. Wasn't the easiest thing. We're 100% unified, but man, it was just a burdensome meeting. Difficult. 
church leaders and individual preachers such as myself can have true authority when our messages align with this authority. We can make declarations of truth that apply to our time, but our declarations of truth must always align with the universal and timeless truth of Scripture. This always. It doesn't have to conform to me. I always have to conform to it. And whenever I do, then I have authority. Whenever I don't, then I'm wrong. Follow me. You're in Matthew 16. Here's where we're coming right down the home stretch. Flip over two pages to Matthew 18. Flip over because you're going to see a continuation of something. You say, man, it sounds like Peter has a whole lot of authority. He got told that whatever he binds and whatever he looses. Well, watch. I shortened this text for time's sake. You say, really? You really tried to shorten your message. It doesn't sound like it. Verse, watch verse 17 because right before this, we're going to get there soon. And it's very necessary. It's a very important passage. You ought to pay attention right here. Before this, the Lord says, if this person in the church, a brother, sins, be it against this person, but really it goes beyond that. This person's in sin, sin against them. Then this person needs to go to them. We don't do that a lot. You need to go let them know. I'm, I'm, I'm mad at them. Have you told them? No. They did something. They said something. They posted something. But they don't ever have the courage to go say. And so what happened? <laughs> Stuff blows up. We just need to do this. So when this happens, you go to them. Here's the idea. This person's really in sin. But they don't get it right. I don't care. Well, then they're to go get it one or two more. So now it's two to three. Hey, you need to see they're not wanting to get right. And they still don't get right. What if they still don't get right? They're living in sin, still don't get right. Now look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. You see that? By the way, this whole chapter started in chapter 18, verse 1. It's the disciples, not just Peter here. It's the disciples. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, what if like the whole church says, hey, listen, you're living in sin, you got to get this right. But they still refuse to do it. Let him be to you, to you all, the idea of the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You're acting like an unsaved person. You're not part of us. You've got to treat them as such. Now here's the reason I had you turn here. This is why it matters. Verse 18. Again, this is talking to the disciples. Truly, I say to you all is the idea. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Same thing. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, whatever you allow, whatever you permit, shall have been permitted and allowed in heaven. Whatever you bind and restrict and refuse, you don't permit, that will not have been permitted in heaven. You sense the Lord is leading the church in these decisions. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Uh, so what's happening? Look at verse 19, 18 again. I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Christ lived on earth, and then he left physically. Ten days later, he sent his Holy Spirit for a lot of reasons, one of which is the church still had to make decisions. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's not here. So we need the Holy Spirit to guide the church to make the right decisions. And when we do that, in accordance with his word, maybe the second best, nah, a good quote. The France quote was just the best. This is a good one. MacArthur offers the following. Please get it. Based off verse 18 here, when believers are in agreement with God's word, written by the apostles, 
God is in agreement with them. Here's an important sentence. When we're there, believers can declare a person's spiritual state with divinely granted authority by comparing that person to the Word of God. Hey, you're in sin. That's your opinion. You don't have the right to say that. If our opinion and our view, discernment, is non-judgmental, truth in love, based on comparing a person's life and words to the Word of God, and their life and words are out of accord with the Word of God, and we recognize that, we have divine authority to say, you're in sin. If a person were to say, oh, I'm on my way to heaven, I know. And I say, can I ask you why? Because I'm a member over at such and such Baptist church, and I got baptized when I was such and such years old. And what else? That's it. On the basis of the Word of God, I could tell that person, then you're not saved. Jeff, you don't have the right now. Yeah, I do. If I ask somebody else, are you on your way to heaven? Yeah. What makes you think I'm a good person? I'm a good person. I've done a few bad things, but I'm, I'm doing my best, and God sees that, and I'm going to get to heaven. I can authoritatively, with the divinely granted authority from the Lord, tell you, no, you're not. You're not on your way to heaven. Over here's a person. I just feel like I trusted the Lord a while back, like last Sunday when Jeff gave that invitation at the end, and, and I was watching online and I actually got saved. I just kind of feel like I need to like get baptized and like tell people that I got saved. You're right. You're exactly right. You should. You should. You should. Somebody listening right now is probably like, I did that last week. And I was kind of just planning on just kind of being an incognito Christian for quite a while. But if something in you is saying, I think I'm supposed to, yep, the Word of God says you should. Oh, here's a person. Well, we're struggling in our marriage. She doesn't cook as good as I thought she was going to. And I'm thinking, I thought about that, but I'm kind of feeling like I should stay and we got to work this thing out. Yep, you're right. I can tell you on already the Word of God, you're right. And we could go on and on. Verse 20. You, you're going to be shocked how bluntly and awkwardly I end today. It is just going to be quick. So I'm warning you. Verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So write this down. This is a surprising command of silence. A surprising command of silence. I'm going to be fast, so here it is. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? That, that, and that. Okay. Who do you guys say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, Son of the living God. (laughs) Yes. You get it. You get it. You know who I am. And it is absolutely a fact. Don't ever doubt it, boys. That's who I am. Now, don't tell anybody. What? Hang on. This is confusing. Seriously. Doesn't a person have to know who Jesus is to be able to go to heaven? Mm Mm-hmm. Why would he say don't tell anybody? There's two things at play. Again, we're going to stop so bluntly it's going to to get whiplash. You ready? Reason number one, here's what's at play. I don't want you boys telling anybody because, you ready? You know who I am, but you don't know what it means. You know who I am. You got it right. But your idea of me being the Christ, you think I'm going to march in there and kick them all out and kick Rome out and set up my kingdom. And so you're not ready to talk. 
you, you need to simmer a few months. In a few months, I'm going to tell you to go tell everybody. Right now, you need to be quiet. But you're right. Second is the main reason, and here it is. So hear it. If Jesus is necessary, knowing who he is, is necessary to enter heaven, why does he give this awkward, surprising charge? Get it. Though Jesus is the anointed one who is to be God's promised king and deliverer, not even he, if you'll read the New Testament, not even he states plainly in public who he is until finally at the end of Matthew on the morning, early morning that he will die on a cross and then only being put under oath by Caiaphas the high priest. I adjure thee by the living God. Are you the Christ? Only then does Jesus himself say, you said it. What you said is true. (gasps) What further need have we of witnesses? He just admitted it. He finally admitted it. When? On the morning he's going to die on a cross. What's going on? You boys don't say anything. It's true, but don't say anything. You don't know what it means. You're going to learn what it means. If you're taking notes. The reason, though he is the anointed one who is the king and the deliverer, the reason he doesn't tell anyone or have them tell anyone is because, you got to get it, he is also the anointed and appointed high priest. He's not just the anointed and appointed king and the, and the prophet. He's the anointed and appointed high priest. What do priests do? They offer sacrifices. And so it is not time for me to be the king. It's time for me to be the prophet, but not time for me to be the king. But I have it, a work to do as the anointed and appointed high priest. I have a sacrifice to make, and I will not let anything stop me from fulfilling God's will. This is why he calls for silence. Jesus is saying, nothing, not even premature fame and popularity. If you boys, you boys go out there and start telling people what you think I am, then there's going to be mobs calling for me to be the king. I am the king, but first I must die on a cross as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And I will let nothing. Can we have that note? Jesus allows nothing to thwart God's plan. So, till then... Keep silent. When you've written that, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I'm going to pray. I would just ask you to check your heart. Are you in the true church? You say, well, I'm a member at Graceview. Are you in the true church? And here's what you want to ask yourself. Peter's confession. Check your heart. Do you understand it? Do you trust it? Have you confessed it? There may be someone in here or watching online right now. You've understood who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Lord and the Savior. He died on a cross for our sins. You've put your trust in Him. You understand who He is. But you've never gone public. You ought to do that. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would guide you and prompt you to do that. If you're not in the true universal church... And we can help you. Would you talk to us? But just before I pray, just a quick word to Christians. Two things. Let's not live fearful this week. Greater is God in us than Satan and his hordes of demons in the world. It's going to get a little scary, but don't be fearful. Hey, the worst they can do is kill you. And if you die... 
you're dying to live. The gates of Hades will never imprison you. You go to be with the Lord and you'll be reunited with your body one day if you're a believer in Christ. So let's just, you know what? Bring it on. And who do you need to tell about Jesus? You say, well, Jeff, he just told them not to tell anybody. Oh, but the chapter's coming. In fact, he's already alluded to it back in chapter 10. That which I whisper in your ear, that which I whisper in your ear, go tell it on the rooftop. That which I tell you in private, you go shout it. Matthew 28, the Lord says, go into all the world. So who do you need to tell? You say, Jeff, you don't understand. I'm, 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 the, I'm the most unexceptional person in this room. Well, number one, I would debate you on that. But number two, Jeff, I'm just, I'm unexceptional. I'm just, I'm not really one to talk about Jesus. I will pray after this. Here's the thought. Peter was a fisherman. Basic fisherman. But Jesus put a call on his life and God revealed a revelation to him. And Peter became a remarkable person when God used him. And the Holy Spirit filled him. He's a great person. He will be great through eternity. You can be much greater. You, you say, me, you, you Christian, if you're a Christian, you can be far greater than you think. If you'll invite the Lord, Lord, use me today to further your kingdom. The most backward, shy person in this room is about to pray. If God can use me, He can use you and He will if you'll surrender to Him. Father, thank you, Lord, for that song service this morning. We profess Jesus is the Lord. We believe in Christ. We believe in you. We come to you through Jesus, my brothers and sisters and I. We love you. We will love you more one day. Lord, I pray that we right now will love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. Let us be pure as we get up from these seeds. Let us go out with your message on our lips confidently and boldly, regardless of the consequences that may come in coming days. Let us spread your kingdom. Use us. You've promised you will advance your kingdom. Do it through us. Let us live fearlessly, confidently taking chances that we never would on our own because we're confident in you. Thank you for the Christ, your son, and your gift, your indescribable gift. It is in his name we pray. Amen.